Okay, well, 7.15 has come, so let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Gary, would you uh, mind opening us in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to learn more about the Word. appreciate the uh, time that is spent to do this. We ask that you uh, watch over us and uh, help us understand what we are to hear tonight. Amen. Okay, we have tonight, next week, to get through the rest of our notes, and we've got about fifteen pages to go. It'll be it'll be tight, but we uh, we should be able to uh, work our way through it tonight. Our topic uh, for the, is is the uh, is dispensationalism, Israel, and the church. Then next week we'll try and cover salvation and eschatology together. However, as I said at the very beginning of the class, if I don't get to eschatology, I'm not particularly concerned because I don't think eschatology is a centerpiece of the uh, of the dispensational system. It perhaps is one of the more visible features of it, but it's not a central tenet. So if we don't get there. I'm not. I'm not uh, losing any sleep. And you can tell somebody that you, you took a class in dispensationalism and we didn't even talk about eschatology. Uh, so if I that, that'll be the benefit if I don't get there. But tonight uh, we'll talk about dispensationalism, Israel, and the church. We started this just a little bit last week just to get ourselves a, a running start. Uh, but uh, perhaps uh, I, I mean we said last week or the last couple of weeks that probably the key feature of dispensationalism that distinguishes it from other systems is that of hermeneutics, that is methods of Bible study. Um, however, if, if, we wanted to, if we wanted to say, okay, what is, what, is the, what is the thing most affected by that, that uh, hermeneutic or that, stu- that method of Bible study, I would say it's the relationship of Israel and the church within uh, the unfolding of biblical history. Uh, We said uh, last week a couple of variations. Uh, Early dispensationalists really had a sharp, sharp, sharp distinction between Israel and the church, so sharp that they never even had any contact with each other. Uh, For instance, Darby had the church as the heavenly people of God and Israel as the earthly people of God. And the... uh, Church ends up in heaven. The is uh, the, the saved or the, the regenerate portion of Israel will stay on earth, and they'll never even have any contact with each other. Uh, most I, I don't know of a dispensationalist who thinks in those terms today, although the accusation sort of lingers. Uh, but most here would suggest that there is a distinction, and furthermore, that that distinction does even uh, uh, project itself even into the eternal state. So let's see if we can't look at some of this. Distinctions of the church, first of all. I say here, I believe you're on about page 58, correct? Okay. So the church is distinct in character, and we've got a couple of points here. Its components are distinct, that is, what, who, who is in uh, the church versus who is in Israel. Uh, Jews and Gentiles are on a plane of equality in the church. 
Uh, there's no prioritization of Jew or Gentile. The Old Testament allowed Gentiles into limited fellowship with the nation of Israel. It was possible to go through a long process and proselytize or actually become a Jew. But you never were one ethnically. Now, you could marry in and your kids would be, would be considered Jews. Uh, but but even, if, even if you proselytized and, be, and, and, and adopted the whole Jewish system, you still were limited in what you could do. You could not go into the into the holy into the into the into the inner circles of the uh, of the temple precincts. Of course, nobody could go into the most holy place. But the uh, the court of, of men, for instance, was closed off to uh, non-Jewish men, even if they had proselytized. Uh, so they, there there was a there was a large section of the temple precincts that was open to Gentiles. Remember when? Jesus comes into uh, the uh, into, for the triumphal entry. He clears this precinct and says, "This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. This is where the Gentiles can go." But there was there, they didn't get in any further. There were, you had to be a, a, a Jew to get into those privileged places. Racial and ethnic barriers, I say, limited the extent of Gentile participation in the Levitical ritual. Excluded them even from entry into some of the temple precincts. But the church knows no racial or ethnic barriers. In fact, this is a very critical point that's made more than once in the scripture. Galatians 3.27 All of you who were baptized into Christ We'll come back to this because that's the entry right. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free man, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And you can keep going a couple of verses down uh, to verse 29. It says much the same thing. Same thing in Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, most of those who would have been in Ephesians were Gentiles, not all. Uh, most of you, uh, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time, at one time, prior to uh, the uh, cross work, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one group. So this is the new group, the church. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, namely the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So a clear distinction here between what was formerly the case and what is the new man, the new body. Same book, Ephesians 3. The mystery of Christ is this. Which no other generation, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Now it has been revealed to his holy apostles 
and prophets in the spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And we can compare here what happened in Mark 7, where there was a woman, a beggar, uh, excuse me, a, a, a woman, of the, a Syrophoenician woman. And she kept asking Christ to cast the demon out of her daughter, and the Lord was ignoring her. Finally, he says, let the children be satisfied first. I, I'm here for the Jews. It's my function here. For it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And it's, it smacks of a little bit of an insult here, but that's, that, was the, that was the term that was used here for the Gentiles. They were lower-class citizens. And then she answered and said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table, though, feed on the children's crumbs. Okay, so she recognizes that, yes, she's a Gentile, and she does not... She does not have a right uh, to the same privileges that the, uh, the Jewish people have. Still, she recognizes that there's something in those covenants for the Gentiles. In, in him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And she perceives this and says, yeah, I, I know I'm not a first-tier kind of, uh, of recipient of these, these benefits of, of the Messiah's work on the earth, but but there's something for us. Uh, and so, and, and that, that, that kind of conversation couldn't occur today, in, or shouldn't occur, at least, uh, within the Christian church. Yes? What does the CF mean in front of the scripture? Compare. Oh, compare. Yeah, so compare the new setup with the old setup. Now, why, why do you... This might be a stupid question. But what was the purpose of God having Jews and Gentiles and separating them for all... Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a hard question to ask, and it's been asked. Remember, why did the Lord set His love upon you um, when you were the least of all the peoples? And the answer is, He set His love upon you because He set His love upon you. So I'll give the same answer to you. <laughs> but that, I mean, that was the answer given. Why did He do it that way? Because that was His prerogative. So. I mean, I, I, I wish I could give you a better answer, but when the question is asked in, in Scripture, that's the answer that was given, so I can't really say much more. It's kind of like it is what it is. It is what it is. Right. And we should probably think not in terms of excluding everybody but the Jews, but actually think in terms of electing the Jews. So it's, it's thinking in, in, in positive terms, although here, of course, it does appear rather negative. I think for the most part it should be thought of in positive terms, just just as election and salvation today. Yes, most people don't receive. At the same time, we don't think of election as a dirty doctrine. I mean, we're, we're delighted that we're the objects of his electing love, even though the great, great mass of people are not the subjects of his electing love. So. So the components are different. The basis of the union is distinct. Believers, as we saw here, are placed into this one new man by means of spirit baptism. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. So this is the, this is the, this is the new thing. We don't have baptism in the Old Testament. How did you get into Israel? 
Well, you were born into it, and if you were a man, you went through the right circumcision. Okay, male. But, uh, but how do you get into the church? Well, circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. Jew and Gentile mean nothing. So what is this new man? How do you get into the new man? Well, by spirit baptism, we are all placed into this one body. And as, and as, and as we probe, we discover here that this idea of spirit baptism is new and universal. New because uh, Matthew 3 says, well, John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, uh, I am baptizing you with a water of repentance, but there's someone coming after me whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to unlatch. He's going to baptize you with spirit and with fire. So you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay? And then we find the next occasion where baptism is used is in, is in the book of Acts, uh, where we find baptism occurring at, in, in conjunction here with Pentecost, both water baptism and this spirit baptism uh, that comes uh, in the form of flaming tongues, whatever that is. I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but I've got an interesting picture. And then, of course, it says here, we're all baptized into the one body, meaning here that everyone who is in the church is in, not because of ethnic privilege, but because uh, we have been born, we have been regenerated, brought into this family, and so the the nature of this new body is a regenerate community. Uh, The old old covenant people of Israel was not a regenerate community, it was a mixed community, uh, which is why Paul talks in in, uh, Romans 9 of not all Israel being Israel. He's not confused about the identity principle here that you learned in math class. What, he, what he's saying here is that there are people in national Israel who are not the Israel of God, that is, believing Israel. And so uh, so, so that's, that's the nature of that body. It was a mixed congregation. The church is also distinct in time. Christ uh, offers a prophecy concerning the church and assumes that it is future to him. In fact, this is the first reference of the church in the New Testament, and it's forward-looking. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the rock and, and, and all that. All I'm looking at here is the will. <laughs> I will build my church. And so we find that the uh, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation stones of the apostles and the prophets. And uh, Christ is the chief cornerstone, uh, but Peter does seem to take some something of a private place in the early church, uh, unlocking the various uh, uh, arenas of, of evangelism, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria. He seems to be on the forefront. I'm inclined to think that Peter is given some sort of a, you know, a leadership role in the church, with maybe Pope. Uh, but he does seem to have been given something of a, of a leadership role there in the church. He was the first one to make this uh, conscious uh, appeal to Christ's lordship. And so it's so it's future. Secondly, letter B here, this revelational mystery of the church assumes that it was not known. See, a mystery in Scripture 
Uh, don't don't think Agatha Christie here uh, when you hear a mystery. What we what, we're, what we think of, what you should think of in terms of a mystery is something that was previously unrevealed, now revealed. Okay, so that's that's what Paul is saying when he says there is a mystery, and defines it here as the church. The mystery, which in other generations was not made to the sons of men, is this: that the Gentiles will be fellow heirs and fellow members of one body fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. And since Paul describes himself as the one through whom God officially revealed much, I, I mean, he's, we, we, we recognize that he's not the very first one to break the news about the church. At the same time, he does write a majority of the New Testament and, and divulges a great deal of truth concerning the truth. And so he is... He's, he's classified the, as the, the apostle to the Gentiles and uh, the apostle of the church. Letter C, Christ's death and resurrection precede the inauguration of the church because they're essential to the organization and the rights of the church. You know, the church was not organized, Ephesians 2 says, until Christ had abolished the law this was the uh, the law. In, the, he abolished the law in his flesh. This wall of partition that existed that had to be abolished by Christ and ended, in order for Jew and Gentile to come together into a into a single new man that previously did not exist. Um, and we find here that the rights of the church, R I T E, uh, rights of the church, also reflect. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is here familiar. Water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, water baptism uh, reflects this idea of spirit baptism that we see in early parts of, of Acts, but also symbolizes participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, both of the uh, both of the ordinances or rites of the church have this twofold uh, twofold idea attached to them. Baptism. Is 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 an entry right into the church, and and that and it brings us and introduces us into the body. So that's the horizontal aspect, but it also has a vertical aspect too, in that it's the first step of obedience and a personal identification with Jesus Christ as our Savior. Same thing with the Lord's table, right? Um, in fact, the if if, if anything the. The, the, the emphasis, striking emphasis in the New Testament is on the horizontal aspect of, of, of communion, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of community. Community Baptist. Community, sorry. Community Bible Church is what you're... It's all right. It's all right, yeah. I'm sure that's not the first time it's happened. So you're in Community Bible Church because... because and, and you celebrate communion because you're celebrating community. In fact, what's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 11... You're not regarding properly the Lord's body, and it's not so much that they're not thinking carefully enough about the broken body and, and spilled blood of Christ, but they, they weren't waiting for one another in the life of the church, right? You know, they, they uh, the the wealthy uh, were coming together and whooping it up for uh, uh, for uh, an all day communion event, and then when the stragglers came in, those who were slaves. Uh, within their society, probably had to work until sunset, and they they straggle in after it gets dark, and there's nothing left. For them. And Paul's like, "This is not communion. This is not the Lord's supper because there's no community here." 
If you're coming here just to eat, stay home. You need to wait for one another until everybody's here and you still celebrate communion as a community. Of course, it also rests on the fact that the elements that are used in this rite are symbolic of the body and the spilt blood of the Lord. So, in order for these rites or ordinances of the church to even exist, we have to we have to wait until uh, the death, uh, burial, and resurrection of Christ Himself. Uh, furthermore, Christ's ascension is necessary to the inauguration of the church. So we're pinpointing our time pretty tightly here. Uh, Ephesians 1 says that Christ's headship of the church demands that he is ascended to the right hand of God. So he ascended up on high, Ephesians 4 says, and gave gifts to men. Okay, And so the gifts by which the church function uh, accrue to the church after Christ has ascended. So we've, so we've narrowed it down pretty tightly here. Uh, most dispensationalists then would say that the church begins at Pentecost. has to be after the ascension and has to be in association with the coming of the Spirit and his baptizing work. So most dispensationalists have landed on, on, the, uh, on, on the day of Pentecost as the, as the commencement point of the church. There, there are some who would quibble a little bit, uh, but if you're... If, but, necessary to a dispensational system is that the church had to, had a finite starting point in history. It doesn't extend all the way back to Abraham or Adam. It has to start after the death of, after the ministry of Christ. Okay? And then I say here, and this is perhaps a little bit debated, uh, we'll, if we get to the uh, eschatology sections, we'll talk about the end times things. Uh, the church is removed in the rapture uh, and never to be seen again on earth, uh, which we find particularly in Revelation 4 and following. The church is not mentioned at all, uh, and uh, there is suggestion here in both of these passages uh, that the, the church is going to escape the wrath of God. And this suggests that its existence is not coterminous or synonymous with the generic people of God. Uh, the the, the, uh, uh, the as we've seen before, once the, the church begins, runs its course, and then God returns His attentions back to Israel, and its and its and, and uh, His attentions to Israel resume uh, during effectively the tribulation and the millennium. Okay, Does that makes sense. Does that follow? So there's a lot of distinctions here. Uh, another another thing here. Uh, the term Israel always carries with it racial, ethnic overtones that are absent in New Testament discussions of the church. I'm, I'm beating this to death uh, because this probably ends up being the the, uh, the hinge issue here. Uh, where you fall on this, the question of the relationship of Israel and the church pretty much defines whether or not you're a dispensationalist. So we, we pound it a little bit here. Uh, covenant theology in an aggressive but I think misguided effort to protect the immutability of God says there has to be a seamless continuity between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. So Israel is the church of God, the church is the new Israel. Okay. Now I appreciate the sentiment, so let, 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 me, let, me, let, me, let me throw a bone here to my Reformed brothers. Uh, they are that. Uh, I think what they're trying to do as much as anything is, is to preserve 
the immutability of God and and the singularity of His purpose, and and I appreciate that. Um, what I what I what I what I am not confident of is that this means there can only be one uh, yeah, monolithic people of God uh, without distinctions. Okay. So let me let me see if I can defend that. The immutability of God does not demand that God is changeless in his activities or that his programs are immobile. Okay, so I, I affirm the immutability of God, lest there be any question. But it does mean that his character is constant, his purposes and decree are fixed from eternity. So while God's purposes for ethnic Israel will never change, the prominence of ethnic Israel and God's eternal program is not static. There can be an ebb and flow to it. So changes in God's dealing with men do not render him mutable or capricious. In fact, it is the immutability of God that, for the dispensationalist, stands in the way of affirming the continuity of Israel and the church. Because we see in, in Romans 11, there is a promise that says, I will fulfill these promises to Israel. And the questions being asked there in Romans 9 to 11, Israel hasn't fallen so as to be irrecoverable, has it? By no means is the answer. And it goes for three chapters explaining how Israel is going to rework its way back into the plan of God. Not that, was, not that, not that the plan of God ever excluded them, uh, but how, how, do they, how, how do they come back to prominence? Well, that's the detail there, those three chapters. Uh, and all Israel, as we come to the end, all Israel will be saved. In an eschatological event, when Christ comes again, the, uh, the nations converge on, on Jerusalem, and the, the remnant that is left, about to be exterminated, and Christ appears in the sky, and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And he will give them pure lips so that they will worship him from shoulder to shoulder. Okay? And so that, at that event, uh, it would seem then that all Israel, what's, what's left of them, all Israel will be saved. And there will dawn a new, uh, a new era of hope for the uh, Jewish people. Okay, uh, A couple of other comments here. Uh, some observations about the distinctions of Israel and the church. Israel is addressed as a nation after the church is established. So if Israel and the church are the same thing, we shouldn't say this. Peter saw this. And he says to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Well, this makes no sense if the church is Israel. He's speaking to unbelieving Israelites who had not bought in at Pentecost. So these unbelieving Israelites are saying, what's going on here? Why is why are you why are you people acting so weirdly? And why are why why are you organizing this new church and have three thousand of you sort of gathered together here? What are you doing? And what does Paul say what does Peter say? Well men of Israel don't be concerned that this is something unplanned. But he who does he address as the men of Israel? Unbelievers. Okay, so uh, this Israelite distinction is is still intact even after the church has been formed. We find uh, multiple occasions where Israelites are referenced as as un, uh, unbelieving Israelites are referenced as Israel throughout the Book of Acts. 
We also find here that the New Testament distinguishes the church from individual Jews. Give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, or to the church of God. And so we have here Jews and Greeks as ethnic distinctions and intimates that neither group is to be equated with the church of God. So and again, this is, this is the whole context of, of, of being all things to all men in order to, for the gospel to move forward. And this is, this is one of the statements here. Don't offend Jews, don't offend Greeks, and don't offend the church of God. In, in the uh, in, 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 you know the methods and the activities in which you participate uh, as you're as, as you're living your life. So if you're trying to you know win a Jew, don't eat a ham sandwich because that will bring offense uh, to to them. Um, and 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 then it's also there's also that statement: don't offend the the, the Church of God either. And so that there's the this realization that there are sensitive people within the Church of God. Uh, that need to be protected as well. Uh, but uh, the point here is there's Jews, Greeks, and the Church of God as separate, as separate uh, groups. We also find the New Testament distinguishes Jews and Greeks inside of the church. Galatians 6, neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and also upon the Israel of God. I add the also because there's a, there's a rather technical Greek discussion that I'm, I'm not willing to have with you. If you want to have it, I'll, we can talk about it. But there's there's some debate as to what the and means. Is the them equal the Israel of God? And that does seem like a, an unlikely reading. So it really should be an and that is a copulative. So and also uh, the Israel of God. Okay, so there's... Jews, and there are there are Gentiles within the church, and then there is the Israel of God, that is, believing Israelites within the scope of the church. And then we've already mentioned here, the whole interchange of Romans 9 to 11 really makes no sense unless the Israel, unless the Israel and the church are separate groups. Paul argues that Israel did not attain what they had sought, except for a small elect remnant of this opened the door for non-Israelites to be grafted in, not into Israel, but into salvation. They were given a place. This is made clear by the fact that the vast majority of Israel remains outside this arrangement, becomes envious then, and has to be grafted back into their own tree. And the passage culminates here in verse 26 when Paul says, All Israel will be saved. So the conclusion here is that the term Israel always has a racial and ethnic connotation. Israel cannot be thought of in terms anywhere in Scripture as just the broad people of God. It always has that racial or ethnic overtone. Jews have no advantage in the church of God by virtue of their ethnic identity, but they do not lose their ethnicity either. In the New Testament, the term Israel may refer either to the whole of Jacob's descendants, or to the believing subset of that group. All Israel is not Israel. So there is no New Testament usage of Israel that cancels out this ethnic idea entirely and applies it to a group that is not Jewish. Okay? So, uh, any any thoughts on that? Yes? I was just wondering, how do you... Uh 
Uh, how do you deal with uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, right at the end of the chapter, there where that says, A man is not a Jew, he is one, only one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. Mm-hmm. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly in circumcision, with circumcision by right. heart, by the spirit. And I realize, you know, that's that's the true Jew spiritually, but that, that would kind of seem like that would possibly take away that argument of always Jews are always yeah. ethnic where it's yeah. where it's in this mention there is a spiritual I realize that's not the emphasis of New yes I, I, there I, is that answer. yeah I, I would I would say that that's sort of a setup for the reference there, there in chapter nine not all Israel is Israel and so we find there in chapter two that there are that to be this this Israel of God is not just about outward form. In order to be part of the Israel of God, you not only have to have the outward form, but you also have to have the inward transformation. So I would, I would see that as, uh, as a reference too strictly to, to Israelites. Okay. So I've got a summary here in number four. They have distinct origins. Israel began as an ethnic group with the call of Abraham, is a political ent- has a political entity with the giving of the law, while the church began on the day of Pentecost as a spiritual body without ethnic or political distinctions. Israel was joined by natural birth and or circumcision without respect to one's spiritual condition, but one joins the church by experiencing the new birth as pictured in water baptism by immersion. Israel had geographic boundaries. The church is universal. They have distinct purposes. Israel's influence in the world was national and corporate in nature, while the church's influence in the world is individual. Israel's purposes are realized in her political structure, her cultic structures too, but also in her political structures, whereas the church has purposes that are realized only in their spiritual endeavors, their missionary and evangelistic endeavors. Israel had no missionary mandate. They'll look in vain to find a missionary mandate for Israel. Uh, perhaps the one lone exception would be Isaiah, and I'm not sure, uh, excuse me, Jonah, and uh, I'm not sure Jonah quite qualifies. He's something of a special case here. Uh, other than him, I think you'll look in vain for any sort of go-and-tell kind of mandate in the Old Testament. It's always a come-and-see. Okay? They will stream to you. Whereas the church is set up completely the opposite. It's like Israel's was it centripetal, and, and, and uh, the church is centrifugal, so it goes out. I might have those backwards, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, so, so we, we are a go-and-tell community. They were a come-and-see community. They also have distinct destinies. Israel will take her place as the head of the nations, where she will serve as the kingdom of priests, while the church will share in the messianic reign as the bride of Christ, and first in rank in the kingdom. We'll, uh, we'll bring that back up again once we get into our doctrine of end times. Okay, so that's the distinctions of Israel and the church. Any lingering thoughts on that? Okay, well, let's get into this uh, 
debate here that uh, Wes has been chomping to get into the whole time. So we'll see if we can oblige him now here. Uh, so what is the relationship of the church to the kingdom? We've talked about the church's relationship to Israel. What is their relationship to the millennial kingdom? There's a variety of positions. Let me set them all up, and then we'll see if we can't uh, uh, offer some, some conclusions. Amillennialism maintains that the kingdom, such as it is, exists now. It's a spiritual kingdom. Okay, and so uh, you look around and say this doesn't seem very real. You know, this doesn't seem like a kingdom. And they would say, right, we understand that because the kingdom has changed into in its fundamental nature. It's not a material, physical, geographical kind of a kingdom. It is now a spiritual kingdom. It is a, it is a kingdom within you. Okay, and so the, the kingdom for the amillennialist is. Effectively, the church, the, the those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, okay, that that is the kingdom, and so uh, it doesn't bother them too much that there is not much material or or civil or social kind of progress going on uh, because the kingdom is is localized in churches. Um, I should have put it here. I don't. I didn't put it in here, but let me put in uh, uh, post-millennialism. We've talked about it, but let's throw it out here. Post-millennialism says that the kingdom such as it is, is is in progress now. It's not reached its zenith, but it's in progress. And so we should anticipate that the physical, material uh, uh, expectations about the kingdom that are detailed in the Old Testament should be starting to be seen. And so, I mean, there's so much about the kingdom in in the prophets. Fortunately, the prophets tend to be ignored a great deal uh, in our in our scripture reading, unless, unless I've got a, a, a remarkable group here. Uh, there, there's a tendency uh, to avoid some of those prophetic sections because they're not easy reading. Okay? But in them is contained an enormous amount of detail about what the kingdom is going to be like. It's, it's going to have a, a, a geographical component. There's going to be abundant water, rain. Uh, there's, there's going to be an agricultural uh, component so that there's uh, uh, fertile land such that the, uh, the plowman will, will overtake the reaper. And obviously, that's hyperbole here, but the, but the idea is it's, it's going to be so effective. It's going to be almost like Edenic conditions where things are growing so well and so so perfectly, no one will be hungry, no one will be sick. Uh, even the animals will get along. The, the lion and the lamb will, uh, excuse me, the, the, actually it's the wolf and the lamb will, will lie, lie together in safety. A child will accidentally put his hand into the into the nest of the cobra, and there's no worry because because the animals are going to respect man is the king of the earth. You know, and, and so, so all of these are components of the kingdom. And, and the post-millennialist says, yes, that is the kind of kingdom we're looking for. And in order to get there, we need to do a lot. We need to set up hospitals so that there's no more disease in the world. Okay? And we, 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 we need to send up orphanages uh, because so that there are no, there are, there are, the fatherless are taken care of. Because that's the way it's going to be in the kingdom. 
okay. But we, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to work on uh, on on industry and, and scientific development because we've got to get to the point where we're efficient with our with our with our with our farming techniques so that no one will go hungry. Okay. And so this this is all the task of the church. Okay. We've got to do all of these things because we're ushering in the kingdom. Okay. And in some in some senses, I appreciate what they're doing. Because they recognize that that's what the kingdom's supposed to look like. Okay, uh, I think they're completely misguided because they think the, the kingdom is now. But I appreciate the fact that they say the Old Testament kingdom, as described, has to has to unfold. Okay. There's also historic premillennialism, and I'll, I'll lump progressive dispensationalism in with them. They're not identical, but we'll we'll. we'll We'll put them together. Recognize that the fullest manifestation of the kingdom is yet to come, but there is a present form of the kingdom, and and, the, and it's called realized eschatology. The idea is that the kingdom is here in part, but not in full, and uh, this has been used by both groups uh, extensively to say this this is our way to uh, have an impact on our surrounding culture, we're trying to usher in aspects of the kingdom, knowing that we're never going to be completely successful. But it gives us, it gives us a, a, a rationale uh, for being uh, much more proactive in the world as an institutional body, as, as the church. And so that's, that, uh, if you take a look at the, the uh, I mean, it was the old new evangelical community, but, you know, some said that new evangelicalism is, is dead, but but the, but the idea lives on, I think. Um, the, the idea is that the, the, the gospel is a holistic thing. Uh, it's not just a matter, our goal as a church is not just to convert people, but actually to transform uh, society as well. Okay, so it's, it's sort of an in-between position, in-between uh, between those views. Now, we also have traditional dispensationalism, which I'm going to defend here. Uh, while, while conceding that the church sustains a relationship with the kingdom, understands that the reign of Christ proper from the Davidic throne is wholly future. Okay, so it's it's not ongoing. Now, I'm going to have to. I'm going to going to try and put out the text uh, for for all the positions here. Try and be try and be fair about this. Uh, but uh, let's let's go ahead and see if we can't uh, put this out here. And let me let me put out my defense first. Now, I, I, uh, recognizing we're going to have to deal with some of the texts that suggest that the kingdom is ongoing in some sense. I want to deal first with the texts that suggest that it's future. Okay. For instance, Galatians five twenty one says that a group of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me, Paul says, from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Implying he's not there yet. Uh, 2 Peter 1.10-11, brethren, be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Because as long as you practice these things, there's a list of in one of the vice lists, you will never stumble, and in this way, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be supplied to you. The implication here is they have not entered 
the kingdom yet. A few others you can you can uh, uh, jot down here. Um, Luke 19, 11, 12, I think we've already talked about this, this, this parable of the nobleman going into a far country. He's coming into the triumphal entry, coming into uh, Jerusalem. There's this, this, this sense of anticipation and, 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 un, and, and perceiving why the people are excited. What does Jesus do? He says, because he saw that they thought the kingdom of God was about to appear at once... He gave them this parable. A nobleman's going to go into a far country and receive a kingdom while he is gone and come back. Okay? And so this, this parable is given primarily to answer why the kingdom isn't going to start immediately. Okay? So, so, he, so the, the implication of this parable is that he has to go away first before, before any kingdom can begin. Same thing uh, when we get to Acts one, you know, he, he, this is this is the last last few words that the disciples have with Jesus Christ before he ascends into heaven. Is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? And and Jesus says, No, it's not. I mean, it, 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 and, uh, and and uh, again, don't want to insert too much tone here, but it's almost as though. It, Christ rolls his eyes and says, no, you don't get it. No, I'm leaving. The, you're, you're going to be left here. And the kingdom is still something uh, for you to anticipate in the future. I think these, uh, the, the whole, um, the, uh, the, whole uh, the content of uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is the Christian prayer. I mean, it's a model prayer for believers. And what does it say? Your kingdom come." Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, implying that the kingdom hasn't come yet. Um, Acts fourteen twenty two. Paul was strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, saying, "We must go through many hardships before we can enter the kingdom of God." Okay, so again, these are these are verses that seem to say not only that an aspect of the kingdom is future, but that you haven't even entered it yet. Okay? This is something that hasn't even begun. Okay? So, so, that, so I, I, again, you know, as, as, you know, as everybody was leaving last week, we had a little conversation here with Wes, and what, what ends up happening is we're looking at, we're going, we're going to get to the verses that seem to point the other direction in just a little bit, but recognize what, what ends up happening. When, when we build a theological system, We've got two things going, okay? Yeah, I'm put it on the board here. We start with certain presuppositions. You know, God is, God has spoken through the scriptures, okay? And then we start around our circle. You know, we, and we, and, you know, we establish the rules for, for Bible study, and then we do exegesis. You know, we, we read, try and glean the meaning of the text. Uh, we try to put together a, a biblical theology whereby we understand what is the storyline of the scripture, what's, what's the main thing that's going on here. Then we start to piece together a system, you know, a, a system of theology. That, okay, uh, how, how do we coordinate all the parts uh, that, that, you know, sometimes seem to be disconnected? Okay, so that's what we're trying to do. 
Now, we come back around the circle, and what ends up happening? Now we have to say, okay, having done that, let's go about around again. Okay. Now we're going to visit, revisit these things. Are, are the, the, the rules for hermeneutics, the rules for Bible study, do they fit? After having been around this loop once, do, do the rules that I've established, do they fit what happens in Scripture? If not, we tweak them. We go back and, and examine our exegesis. Did we read the scriptures correctly? I mean, part you know, we're all we're all we're all inclined to say, yeah, I'll, I'll adjust my system. But sometimes we have to adjust our our reading. Maybe I read it wrong. Okay, then we come back around, and you know, maybe we maybe we need to adjust what we think the the whole point of scripture is, the the the, the development narrative development of what's going on in scripture. And then we come back and say, maybe our system needs to be adjusted. And so what we have in, 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 this is what I call theological system building. Okay? You're building a system of theology. And you go around again and again and again and again. Over here is what I call the correspondence side of truth. In order to have a valid system of truth, it has to correspond with what the Bible says. So whatever I say, whatever my system says... It has to agree with what the Bible says, because the Bible is, is, a, is our guiding principle. It's our authority. At the same time, over here, we're saying it also has to be coherent. That is, it has to agree with itself. And you can't have parts of your system that disagree with one another. There has to be some sort of a, a, uh, a comparison of Scripture with Scripture so that they're both saying the same thing. We, uh, scripture cannot say antithetical things. You know, classic example. Paul says, you're justified by faith alone. And then James says, Abraham wasn't justified by faith alone. <laughs> and we say, uh, wait a minute, I did something wrong here. Because I, I, need to, I, need to, I need to understand the scriptures, and I have to believe both of those statements. But they seem to be at odds. And so what do we do? Over here, we try and build up a model that, that explains how those two statements can exist side by side and make sense. Okay, Paul was talking about how you enter a relationship with Christ. James is talking about the nature of that relationship. It is, it is, faith always is a working faith. Even though works does not get one saved, faith, if it is genuine, always issues forth in fruits, uh, fruits of faith. And so, and so we, and so we come up with some sort of a system that makes the scriptures make sense. So what 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 we're going what we're doing tonight is sort of a classic example of what we do in systematic theology. There are a bunch of passages which seem to say we've not entered the kingdom of God yet. And then there are some passages that we're going to come to that seem to suggest that we're in the kingdom of God. Well, they can't both be true. Okay? We we, we know that. We're either in it or we're not in it. And, of course, you know, there's sort of an in-between position that we're kind of in it, but not completely. Okay, that's sort of the in-between position. Okay, but we have to come up with some sort of a system that makes makes sense of everything. And so we might come up with different systems. I, I mean, Wes has sort of, you know, gone on record already as, as saying, I'm not sure I'm, 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 I'm where you are. And I, and I appreciate his candor, and I, I don't have a problem with that. So so don't, don't feel uh, inhibited here. I, I, I've, I've sort of made, made a little light to me. 
so, so, so what, what ends up happening is I, I take these passages and I say, I think that, the, that the, these passages that say we haven't entered the kingdom of God speak more clearly than the ones that ostensibly, I'll use that word, ostensibly suggest that we're in the kingdom of God. Okay? Wes, on the other hand, would probably go the opposite direction. There are, there are, there are passages in scripture that are, seem very clear that we're part of the kingdom of God, and so I'm going to revisit these passages that I just read here, and, and perhaps there's an explanation other than what, what, what I've suggested here. So that's, that's effectively what's going on. Again, we're not both right. One of us is godly wrong. Okay. At the same time, uh, it, it's, it's sort of an exercise here in system building. And, uh, and hopefully that, that makes sense as to what, you know, what I do for a living. I teach systematic theology. <laughs> I build systems. Yes. Can I offer a possibility? Sure. Okay. Um, salvation. Mm-hmm. Our salvation. Our being in Christ and our being saved has a past element. Some passages that we have regarding our salvation as, as believers today in this age our past. Yeah. Okay. I no, I'm sorry I don't have passages at hand, but some passages talk about we have been saved and we were saved. Right. Okay? Some passages talk about we are being saved. Mm-hmm. And some passages talk about we will, will be saved. Okay. Why can't the kingdom be you know and, uh, and at least mean. presently and Future. Yeah, and that and that's and that's an argument held by a lot of a lot of folks that there is an already and a not yet aspect of the kingdom, sometimes called realized eschatology. We are realizing today some of what has thought been thought of as future. Because I don't I don't want to be considered a post millennialist. Sure. Or or a one of these no. in betweenites that you talk about uh, that, that uh, you know they're trying to straddle the fence. Right. You know, I'm just I'm just saying there are passages of scripture. You know, right. like Romans 14 and the others, Acts 28, Acts 20. You know, and, and others. Uh, you know that, that you know yeah. just to 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 say there's no present reality of the kingdom almost seems to me like. like like an evolutionist saying, "Oh, look at the model. Look at the cell. Beautiful thing. It looks for all the world like like it was intelligently designed, but we know it's not because our system says it's not." Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess my, my quick answer to you, and, and we'll, I, I I think I've got a comprehensive list of, of all the texts that you would well, oh, would want to raise. So yeah, uh, but at least just looking at these texts initially, these these preliminary texts. It's not, it's not so much saying that we are in the kingdom and will be in the kingdom in sort of an enhanced or better or greater sense. The, the, the thing that sort of stands out to me is that all of these passages are in terms of we haven't entered it yet. It hasn't started yet. It hasn't been established. Well, so, yeah, so, so, so those... The physical, yeah, for sure. So, so, so I guess that's... That's the thing that that jumps out at me is the kingdom hasn't started, hasn't been established, is has not been entered. We will not enter it until later. So the, 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 that's that's the kind of language that, to me, 
makes me really scratch my head and say, well, if we haven't entered it, it hasn't been established, and it is not yet, then, then how are we, how can we be in it? Okay, and so that's, that, that's, I'll, I'll get to your text in a little bit, but, but just basically, I mean, if, if we can, for a minute, just take out the, the other texts that are, that are crowding in right now. Okay. Does these texts seem to suggest the kingdom isn't here yet? It hasn't been entered yet? Yeah. Okay. No, we'll get to your. We'll, we'll get to yours, um, but uh, maybe not tonight, unfortunately. Um, but let's uh, let's let's just establish here that the church does have a relationship to the kingdom. Um, but the nature of it is is uh, is 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 going to be hard to discern here. Church saints, first of all, are regarded. I'll say I'll use this word proleptic because it's the one that makes most sense to me. But I'll explain what it means. Um, there's, there's, in, in, in Greek, there are, there are, there's this past tense verb, normally past tense verb, it's the aorist. But every once in a while, uh, scripture writers will use this past tense verb to describe something that is future. Okay? Um, because it is, it is regarded as so certain within the mind of the writer that they'll actually refer to it in the past tense. A classic example would be uh, Ephesians 2.6. He has seated us in heavenly places. And well, I look at that and say, um, nope. <laughs> I'm not in a heavenly place right now. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here right on earth, standing here, uh, right on earth. And I, and, but but there is, there's this, this expression here that by granting to us eternal life, he has guaranteed a place for us uh, in the heavenlies, in heaven, and so it's it, that's what's sometimes called the is sometimes called the proleptic use of the of the of the Greek past tense. Okay, Colossians one thirteen I think is 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 a similar passage here. It says here he rescued us from the domain of darkness and darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. As we've mentioned before, Colossians and Ephesians are very similar books. A lot of overlap. They say much the same thing as you work through them. And, and if, if, you're, if you're following along, tracking, you're trying to make a harmony of, the, of these two books, you find that these verses line up. God has seated us in the heavenlies, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. And so I would say certainly the church has a relationship to the kingdom. I would understand it to be a future thing, that he has rendered it certain that we will be participants in the life of the kingdom. Okay, so that's, so certainly we can say that, uh, and th- which, which means that the old dispensational idea that the, uh, that the, the church and, the, and Israel are completely separate doesn't, doesn't work for me, because we're going to be together with Jews in a single, sing- in, in a single kingdom. We're going to be co-reigning with Christ, and Israel would, will be something of the priestly class, but we're all going to be together in one kingdom. Okay, so uh, all that to say that there is a relationship sustained between the, in, the church and, and, uh, and the kingdom. And I say also the church will be co-regnant. They will reign with Christ, co-reign with Christ during the millennium, serving as part of, if I can put it for, for lack of a better word here, the royal family administrators in the higher echelons of millennial rule. If we endure, we will reign with him. Do you know not do you not know that saints will judge the world? 
to him who overcomes, Revelation 3, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay? So the church does not exist in a sphere that's totally separate from Israel, but it does have a role within that sphere. If, in fact, it is saying that all people everywhere are going to reign with Christ, it begs the question, who's being, who's being ruled? <laughs> If everyone's a ruler, then who's being ruled? And I think my, the dispensationalist has a good answer. The church is going to reign. They're going to be the ruling class. They're going to be the administrators. Israel is going to be functioning in a religious sense. They're going to be the cultic class, the priestly class. And then there's going to be a mass of people who are going to be converted during the during the period of the kingdom, during the millennium. And these people are going to be the ordinary citizens, if I can put it that way. Okay, uh, and, and so it's not separate, but uh, but we have something of a regal rule. A similar indication of rank and position in the kingdom is found in the marriage proceedings at the close of the tribulation period. We find that the Christ, the, the, excuse me, the church, Christ is, Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. Um, but both of those groups have attendants. Okay? Old Testament saints, this is perhaps the thinnest category here, the thinnest, least, least defined here. Uh, Old Testament saints are the friends of the groom who attend him as modern day groomsmen. Tribulation saints come up and escort. Uh, they're represented by the virgins who await the return of the bride and groom. These virgins are the attendants of the bride. And then there are some who are shut out of the festivities. Okay, so the unredeemed. So it, 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 if, in fact, everyone is the bride of Christ, there's no room for these extra people. Uh, perhaps they're just there to fill out the story uh, or, or something. But no, it does seem like there's the church that is the bride. There are there are groomsmen. There are attendants for the for the virgins, and then all those who are invited to the feast. So it's a, so the church is involved with the kingdom. Just uh, they're they're part of a part of the group. Uh, but uh, uh, they are. But but we should not think in terms of the kingdom outside of those uh, outside of those uh, parameters does that, does that make sense there, so there is a relationship that the church has with the kingdom I'm not sure I'm prepared to say at this point that the kingdom is in effect today and unfortunately we're not going to get to the problem text they're up here there's eight of them eight actually uh, so so we'll get to them next time Wes I've been putting you off for weeks and I'm going to do it again but uh, it's first thing next time so hopefully you're here didn't you use the decline of society, like, going farther away from Christ as we're not in the kingdom today? Like, I mean... Yeah. Just looking at political views and things that are going on right now? Yeah, in fact, in fact, if you, if you take a look at the history of post-millennialism that we're ushering in the kingdom, it, it was flourishing up through the Industrial Revolution, up even into the, into the 19th century, and then it was abruptly disappeared from church life at World War One, because World War One, if you're familiar with the history of World War One, I mean, it's one of the nastiest wars, all the chemical warfare, modern modern wars, machines, but but uh, uh, 18th, 19th century uh, uh, war models and 
just fields full of people killed by by my modern machinery uh, and 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 by uh, by uh, by the chemical warfare. It was just a horrific war, and it was it was almost as though the lights went out. Post millennials died. You, you rarely find a post millennials today. There's a few, uh, but for the most part, the, the whole system disintegrated overnight with World War One. And so, yes, I, I think that is that is often why people would say. Whatever we have, it's either it's either a spiritual kingdom because it's certainly not a material kingdom, or there's 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 a m- massive future manifestation that's not here yet. So that's why amillennialism and various forms of premillennialism thrive today. Okay, so we'll come back and finish that tomorrow and uh, next week. And uh, hopefully we'll at least touch on all the rest of the areas uh, that are left.